is the Beyond the Studio podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. And we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Here at the Beyond the Studio podcast, we do our best to create the highest quality audio experience for you. However, we are both brand new to audio recording and editing, and so are our guests. So periodically, there are going to be some funky technical difficulties that we don't yet know how to resolve. And a lot of times we don't recognize them until it's too late. So you'll notice in this episode that there's going to be a lot of audio problems in each one of our recordings. And as annoying as it is to hear, the content of this recording is so fantastic that I urge you to look past the audio problems because the interview is really great and the information is really great. So thank you for your patience as we learn and enjoy the episode. On today's show, Nicole and I will be interviewing a good friend of mine, Rachel Hume, who is a photographer and a high school art teacher and is just constantly adventuring for her work. So Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am parked at the only coffee shop that Austin and I could find near his house. So we're good. Perfect, perfect. Oh, also the most Veronica Mars-esque person I've ever met. (laughs) Very good sleuthing. (laughs) The highest compliment. (laughs) Exactly. So Rachel, do you want to tell us about your like creative background thus far? Sure, yeah. Um, So like Amanda just said, um, I currently teach high school photography full time. Um, I work part time for Apple. um, And I also work kind of occasionally doing freelance photo work. Um, I have my BFA in photo and my Master of Arts in teaching both from MICA. Uh, which is the Maryland Institute College of Art. My first job actually was doing retouching work at 15. Um, So I've been working with photos for a really long time. Um, And I always knew that I wanted to be a a teacher. Um, I didn't know that I wanted to be an art teacher until I had a really amazing art teacher in high school. But I I think that education was always a really big part of my life and and art was too. And so it kind of made sense for them to come together. How far do you want me to go in depth with with the rest of that? Is that good? Full origin story. We want to go deep. Yeah, the full bio. (laughs) Starting with uh, the date of your birth and then going from there. Yeah, what's your sign? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Actually, I am curious. Did you you go through the MAT program at MICA? Because I know that's something a little unique that they offer, which is that five-year dual degree program in uh, BFA and then also uh, Master's of Art and Teaching. Yeah, actually I did. And that was one of the big things that drew me to apply to and eventually accept the offer from MICA was that it was one of the only art schools that allowed for that dual degree, the BFA and whatever you choose and then the Master of Arts in Teaching in five years, um, which I think was really valuable for me, you know, economically because you kind of get two degrees essentially for the price of one. Um, Time-wise, it was really valuable. And, you know, coming away from the program now, I'm so happy that I was trained kind of as an artist first and a teacher second. And I think Mm -hmm. that that really informs my practice in the classroom in a really big way, you know, thinking about the art practice being kind of the root of everything and and the teaching kind of coming second. So you maintain a pretty active practice as a photographer then in addition to your your course load? I do, yeah. I think that um, it kind of took me a couple of years to get to that balance between the two. And that's one of the hardest things I think for emerging art teachers is to kind of figure out how to transition from this identity of constantly making for yourself or making for clients and then suddenly having to turn around and and focus all of your attention on making uh, work for examples for students. And so I I do feel like I'm finally getting to a place in my practice where I can kind of balance both. I wouldn't say that they're equal just yet, but I think that it's, it's finally getting to that comfortable place of being able to do both at the same time. Yeah, I feel like it's hard to kind of balance your time and also just your, I guess, mental energy between two very demanding things. Like you got to put a lot into your practice to keep it rolling and to, I don't know, stay inspired. And it also, I'm sure, is incredibly draining doing a lot of work 
with teaching, especially when you're creating your whole curriculum and whatnot. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think a lot about, you know, when you're on an airplane and I've been flying a lot um, back and forth to see my boyfriend who now lives in Chicago, but I've been thinking about how when you get on an airplane, one of the first things they tell you to do when they give you that little tutorial about the like ox- oxygen mask, right? And they sort of say, okay, you know, put on the oxygen mask first for you so that you can mm. then better help <laughs> the person next to you, right? And so I yeah. think about teaching in that way and that's what I have to keep reminding myself so often and my coworkers too to just sort of be like listen like you've got to self-care and especially for art teachers you know the the nurturing of your practice has to come first in order for you to be the best help to them in the long run yeah I love that analogy and I feel like it applies to so many things too whether you're a teacher or you know really whatever kind of other life obligations you have or if it has to do with a family or even taking care of your dog you know there's so many things that demand our attention on a daily basis so you know reminding yourself that that taking care of yourself first is actually really necessary for you to be able to give of yourself and your time um, to others and you know it's not a selfish thing but that it's you know it's really crucial to being able to maintain your energy for the the kind of work that you want to do especially when it is very giving by nature. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just something that we have to keep kind of constantly reminding ourselves about. And you know, the classroom, like I see it as as an ecosystem, right? Where like one part of the classroom, if it fails and if it's unhealthy, then the whole community fails. And so if that's the teacher that's not doing well, then the rest of the room suffers. If that's one child, if that's one table, if it's the the making aspect, if the lessons aren't going well, if the demos aren't good, it's like the whole thing kind of has to be in sync. And I think that comes back to everybody making sure that, that their priorities are in line and that they're taking care of themselves for do you feel like your work as a teacher really reinforces then your work as a photographer like it it kind of gives you the energy that you need to take back into your work because I've I've heard that from other teaching artists before and Amanda nor I are are teaching artists ourselves and so I am curious because it is kind of a a common career path for artists to uh, be educators as well do you find that it is something that really informs your work as a photographer I do. Yeah, I actually I think it informs my work in a couple of ways. One that I've recently kind of come to appreciate is sort of that, you know, when you're in art school, especially at MICA, when you're in a really good sort of thriving photo department, you are as an undergrad pushed to kind of develop a really distinct and particular style for yourself. And then when you turn around and become a teacher, it's almost like you've got to kind of redact that completely and become a jack of all trades in all types of photography or in all types of art Mm. so that you can be the most help to your students. And so I I found that, you know, in college, I'm, you know, I look back on the work that I was making and it was kind of funneled into this particular canon or the style. And then, you know, all of a sudden as a teacher, it's like you get a kid emailing you in the middle of the night that's like, Miss Hume, I just got my first camera and I really want to take great photos of stars at night because I found this Instagram photographer. Can you help me? And it's like, oh my God, like I've never taken photos of stars at night before, but here I am and I got to help this kid. And so it's, it's kind of neat that teaching pushes you, or at least in my case, has pushed me to go back and kind of relearn a bunch of things that I didn't think that I was previously interested in, which then kind of circles back into my own work because I'm, I'm researching these skills and these techniques and these methods and these artists. And certainly that ends up influencing the kind of personal work that I end up making, uh, which is so cool. It's such a win-win situation. Yeah. This is a total segue, but thinking back on Micah, I, it still blows my mind that we were in MICA at the same time and never really met while we were there, both in the photo department, but then became friends later. And even though I haven't known you as long as I could have, I feel like I've I've seen your work develop in the time that I have known you. And just every time you share work with me that you're working on, I'm like, yes, this is so great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I really think that teaching is, has pushed my work to different places, and I really am so thankful for that. You know, it's kind of hard to see the forest for the trees at first, but looking back, I, I really do. I mean, I, I never would have thought that in my first or second year of teaching that I was making any progress with my own work, but I look back on it now, and you see these small influences and these little gains along the way. And, you know, lately I've started to work with materials found throughout the school day and found in my classroom and found in the school building at the end of the day. So a lot of the small props and the objects that I've been photographing for myself are actually this kind of like found ephemera that's coming from school and coming from the classroom. So it really is this kind of awesome relationship between the two in my life right now. Yeah. When you were at MICA, you got the Myers 
photo grant and you did a lot of work specifically on teaching within that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I feel like my personal work kind of exists in these two really opposing spaces right now. So there's, these, you know, these like elaborate still life constructions of, of tiny objects that I find at school. Right. And then there's this documentary interview portrait work from the Meyer, which I feel like is still kind of on pause. You know, it's ironic that that project is and was about teaching and then had to be put on hold because I was teaching. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, so I, I started the project because I, I knew that I, I really wanted to kind of lend a voice to empty classrooms. I grew up in South Florida in an area where lots of schools are closed and are continuously being closed. And I wanted to document not just these, these empty kind of abandoned schools, but also document the lives that those classrooms had led and that the hallways had led prior to the closure. And so I I sought out empty schools and, and teachers and staff and students that had taught in them and learned in them and, and existed in those spaces and brought them back to their former classrooms to make their portrait and, and do interviews with them. And the project happened at just the right time. You know, I was finishing up my, my master's at MICA and I was I was teaching at the time and I was getting ready to, you know, accept this, this new teaching job and it was just kind of right at this intersection of my life ending as a student and beginning as an educator. It was really powerful for me to travel around and, and kind of meet and interview these people from all walks of life that all kind of shared this common thread of this the shared history in the classroom. So were you talking with and photographing teachers and students that were from those those school programs that had been shut down? Right. So the idea was that I would first, I would either find the school first and then research and, and get in touch with people that had taught at the school. Or sometimes I would meet, you know, the person first and then ask them where they had taught. And that would lead to a conversation about how the building was empty. And so it was this pretty laborious process of matching up, you know, abandoned school with former teacher or staff or student member and then trying to get them back into the classroom and then take their portrait in that empty space you know and, and that's really been part of the challenge for me to keep the project going is that it's just so much kind of research and effort to get all those pieces of the puzzle in line to be able to make the portrait but it's really really valuable work for me as an educator to kind of get these these other insights from other people and I, I'm hoping that I will eventually have some more time to kind of continue the project yeah I, I think that brings up a really interesting conversation too and I'm trying to think of sort of how to best phrase this but what I I love about your project is that you're highlighting other arts educators but you know you're also kind of creating this larger context which I think is especially relevant now where you know the the future of arts programs throughout the country is really at risk and I think that you know being an art teacher is such valuable work because I think that one common thread for you know most all of us who are on this career path of pursuing you know life as an artist we've all had some really influential experience in our youth, whether it was coming from, you know, a really strong art program at the elementary, middle, or high school level, or, you know, having a really great mentor or a really great teacher that kind of gave us some form of encouragement much earlier on in our life. And so I just think about, you know, the the loss that occurs when we don't have that, you know, it really starts at that level and depriving um, students from the opportunity to, to involve themselves in the arts really you know means that you're you're taking away artists at all levels of society and uh you know we all just suffer for that so I don't know like do you want to talk at all about your own experience and like what you said education has always been important to you and you you've had some really great mentors along the way but just anything that you observe from you know your own teaching working with the students that you do or just experiences you had when you were younger and then I don't know maybe how that ties into you know this this project that you're working on or some of the things that you think about yeah definitely I think I feel so fortunate to be in the position where I could fly back to Florida right now and meet with just about every classroom teacher that I had as a student growing up, right? And so I could get on a plane and I could I could I have access to all of those former educators in my life in some way because they're either still teaching or the, the classrooms and the schools are still open. But there are so many students that don't have that opportunity and, and schools are really this hub for all of us at this these kinds of like intersections in our lives where we're about to become different people and so many important things happen in those walls and I I just think so much about the positive and the negative experiences that I've had and how they've shaped me you know my art teacher in high school my digital design teacher I should say kind of opened up this 
massive set of opportunities for me that snowballed into my career. And she really kind of showed me the kind of teacher that I wanted to be. She wasn't self-serving. You know, she never really sought recognition for any of the opportunities that she connected us to. That was always about the students. And she was just so joyful. You know, she would stand at the classroom door every single day with this big smile and she would look every single person right in the eye as you walked in and in this like really goofy voice just to every single kid would be like, greetings, hello, how's your world today? And then at the end of every class, I'll never ever forget this, she, at the end of every class, right before the bell would ring or maybe right after, sometimes she didn't end on time, she always said to us, uh, make it a great day go out and play. And so that phrase of like, make it a great day, like go make what you want from the world, right, was just so impactful to me. And just to have that kind of like force of positivity in my life every single day, no matter what else was going on, really influenced me to to go out and, and try and put a little bit of a little ounce of that positivity and love out into the world that she gave to me. And as someone that has been able to witness you in your classroom environment and have met some of your students, I can definitely say you are that type of teacher as well yourself. Oh yeah, you did um, a workshop, didn't you, Amanda? The, okay. Yeah! Yeah, Amanda came in to speak to and show her work to my fine art prep students. In my county, fine art prep is like art one, so it's the introductory art class that every student has to take to graduate. And she was phenomenal. The kids, that was a really quiet <laughs> class, and I felt kind of guilty that I had brought her into this like super quiet, super uh, nervous kind of class of mostly ninth graders, but they loved her. And there are still kids <laughs> that left on the last day of school with her stickers, her close call studio stickers oh, with so puns nice. on them stuck to, stuck to their sketchbook and stuck to their binders. Um, oh my goodness. I'm so, so thankful that that was able to work out and that you were able to come and do that for That's us. That's awesome. And I think what that also does is like shows them as students, like what are some of the possibilities? You know, I think it's so cool that you're bringing in working artists who are at you know, this later stage of their career so they can look at someone like Amanda and say like, wow, this, you know, this is what my life could look like or, you know, this is the kind of career path. You could be so look successful. Look how cool I am. <laughs> you could be just like me. <laughs> no, totally. And I think that especially at the art one level, I mean, a lot of those kids just don't have any context for the art yeah. world. They might not be interested in art and maybe they'll never take another art class again. You know, that's not the point. But just to see a working, a younger working artist like Amanda, um, I think yeah. was just invaluable for them. Just, just such a cool experience. Yeah. I know when I was younger, I always knew I wanted to be an artist, but I had no idea what that looked like as far as a profession goes. And I just figured like, okay, if you want to be an artist, you probably end up being like a graphic designer for some firm or brand. And I think that's what you can do. I think that's all you got. And I mean, not that my career is like the dream example, but I appreciate that you take the time to show them that like there are so many different routes that you could take and you know, they're all valid. And I know like I really appreciated that experience and I feel like it it opened my eyes to even just a new way of talking about my work and I I think you're a you're a great teacher. Well thanks. <laughs> Segwaying again unless we have any more questions uh specifically about teaching. Nicole, do you have any more? Yes and no, but we'll just see where the conversation goes. <laughs> so, go ahead, Amanda. <laughs> Because uh, I wanted to ask about the trip you were just on in New Mexico. Oh, yeah. Okay, so in late July, so I guess that was probably about two, three weeks ago, three weeks ago now, I traveled to Santa Fe, New Mexico, because I received funding to go take a class at the Santa Fe Photographic Workshops. And the workshops do these kind of weekly classes on all kinds of topics. Most of them are, are making kinds of classes where you would go for a week and make images. The class that I chose to take was actually the complete opposite of all the other ones that are generally offered. And it was a marketing class called Marketing Your Photographs. And it was taught by Mary Virginia Swanson, who in the photo industry is kind of affectionately known as Swanee. She's fabulous. And Swanee spent the week with us from you know, 8.30 in the morning, often until 9 or 10 o'clock at night in the classroom, running through the whole gist of how to make a living from your images. And a lot of that content was stuff that I had been exposed to at MICA, that, you know, that all of us had been exposed to at MICA on some level. But this was a really deep dive into the practicality of it, who to talk to, how to make it work, how to find the right audience for your photographs. And I think it was exactly what I needed right around this time of, of finally, like I said before, kind of coming into feeling like I'm starting to balance teaching and making my own work. I am curious and was was really wondering, you know, what, where am I going to take the work that I'm making now? You know, is it marketable? 
how, what else can I do with this beyond kind of posting it online and getting feedback? And I really felt like I came away with just a concrete kind of to-do list for myself of what do I need to do now to take the work forward um, and get it in front of the right audiences. So intriguing. So tell us how, how do we do it? <laughs> so there's no one step secret. Actually, first <laughs> I want to know, what, how did you find this residency? And are you applying for this like in the summer months? It sounds like when you would be off school. So like, how does this fit within your life in general? And like, have you done other things like this before in the past? Oh yeah, yeah, sorry. So um, the Santa Fe workshops run year round and you can apply to go to them pretty much at any time. I mean, I, I think the only times when they're not running or usually during the holidays. And so most of the workshops are a week long. Some are a little longer, some are a little less. And I I think I discovered them probably you know, seven or eight years ago. And I've actually gone out twice. The first time that I went out, I also received funding to go because I I just could never afford to just pay outright. You know, most workshops are anywhere from $1,500 to like $2,000 a piece plus travel. So it's a little out of my price range to go without funding. And were these grants that the program is offering you can also apply to? Or is this like funding from outside sources? Uh, It's a little bit of both for me. So there are ways that I can apply for funding through my school system to go and take professional development opportunities like But the Santa Fe workshops themselves, um, when I discovered the site probably back in like 2009 or 2010, I remember the first thing I did was click on the about page to look and see if they offered any funding or any scholarships. Um, And they do. So they have a scholarship section on their website where you can apply. And they offer like five or six different types of scholarships to emerging photographers, practicing photographers, everybody in between. Um, And they're competitive. They're not need-based necessarily, but you kind of submit a statement um, and a portfolio of work that gets reviewed. And then if you are accepted, then the grant money kind of ranges. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough that the amount that I received this time does cover or did cover the full tuition of the class, Okay, which was phenomenal. Yeah. So can you share some of the secrets and takeaways that you learned through the workshop? Yeah. Um, I was actually sitting on the couch with Amanda right after coming back and was just kind of like gushing about the experience. And I think the biggest takeaway for me, which still blows my mind, was that there are these so many different avenues for your work and that no matter what you make like I think the example that Swanee gave every time was like oh you know if you photograph tree frogs and that's all you do there is a market for that it does not matter what you photograph and what what your work is about there's always going to be a market for it and it's just up to you as the artist to find that and to find that audience but not to get discouraged and thinking that your work is too specific or too general or too this or too that because there's always going to be somebody out there that's looking to buy it and use it for something yeah and so I think the biggest thing that blew my mind was that there are places like let's say progressive auto insurance that have a corporate art collection and that progressive actually has the largest corporate art collection in the world and they actively acquire pieces for the collection which is wild right and then if you google if you google corporate art collections there are so many others there are all these Mm -hmm. like kind of massive companies that we interact with on a daily basis that collect art and that that's an avenue for us i mean i never would have known so she really talked a lot about these kind of niche opportunities and these these things that you just wouldn't be thinking about Um, unless you knew where to look for them or who to look for and just the encouragement that it's out there totally and I'm really curious to know what some of her advice was for connecting with those organizations because we'd actually talked earlier and this is something that I've done too in my own work is reaching out to art consultants and people who are just in the business of, of selling artists work and supporting them through connecting them with various collectors and buyers and so you know in some cases that's individuals but in a lot of cases it's larger corporate spaces or you know healthcare organizations or whatever and I think that it has like a little bit of stigma around it because when we hear that we think uh, like really commercial work or you know everyone has an idea in their head of like work that they've seen in an office space that was just really uninspiring to them but you are so right and those large businesses are in some cases really big supporters of artists and even like working at the SF MoMA Museum here in San Francisco the the biggest donors to the museum are the Fishers who are the founders of Gap and the founders of Levi's and um, you know there are there are these big corporate companies um, and the founders who just became really big art collectors because you know they have the budgets to do so 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 other than art consultants did, did she have any advice for you know getting your work in front of some of these corporate collectors yeah she actually you know we spent a whole night every night was a little bit different you know the topics were different and one night we stayed really late and talked a lot about the value of portfolio reviews and not just 
the value of attending them, but making sure that you're attending the ones that fit the audience that you're looking for. And I think that that was great advice because there are so many of these portfolio reviews. You could be spending your whole salary attending them, registering for them, flying to them, right? It's not worth attending all of them because not all of them are going to have reviewers there that are looking for what you're making. And so she talked a lot about kind of making a list of what's happening this year over the next couple of years. You know, if it's Photo NOLA or if it's Photo Week DC or if it's some book fair in New York. And then not just making an effort to attend, but before registering, making an effort to research the reviewers that are going to be on the panel and going to be sitting with your work, looking to see what kind of projects they've supported before and then seeing if it's a match for your work. And if it's not, then it's probably not worth paying to go and be a part of that experience. So I think everything she harped on was just like intense research and just making sure that you're you're doing your homework before you go, so to speak. Yeah, wow. And I, I mean, I'm sure that was that's good with you because you're very, very good with research. <laughs> yes, I'm very research oriented. Um, and that really appealed to me. You know, she talked a lot about even just kind of taking the extra step to like print out the bios of the reviewers that you're about to sit with and kind of make notes about who they are and what they've done before and, and asking good questions at the end of the, of the interview with them. Like, you know, not asking, you know, do you like the work or do you think that you would be interested in collecting the work, but framing the question more like, do you think that my work would be appropriate for your audience? And if the answer is no, do you have any suggestions for what kind of audience this might be more appropriate for? Do you know anyone whose audience might be interested in this? Because that kind of takes the pressure off of the reviewer to make a distinction there about yes or no, they personally like your work or don't like your work. And when you frame it in the context of the audience, you have sort of a higher success rate then. So is there any central place or you know listing to find when and where these events are taking place? Or is it really just a matter of doing a lot of independent research? Um, there are actually quite a bit of sort of like aggregate blogs and websites that kind of compile all these different events. Um, my personal favorite one, and this is one that she recommended too, is actually lensscratch.com. Um, and I like Lenscratch for a couple of reasons, because it's a fine art photography blog that just regularly features work, which creates a really great searchable database when you're looking for people who are working in a particular style. But they have a resources tab on the blog. Um, I think it's just called Resources. And it's a very, very frequently updated uh, list of photo-specific calls for entry. Um, and there's sort of these little columns that list, you know, what's the name? when is the deadline and how much does it cost and it's just really nice you know as an artist working particularly with photography to kind of have this narrowed down frequently updated database of events and reviews that are specific to photo wow well that's helpful yep I love lens scratch flak photo is another good one um f-l-a-k it's run by andy adams uh no relation to amanda as far as i know (laughs) and um yeah andy's just really great i mean he uh is available on just about every social media platform and he's constantly he's the only person I've ever seen and I don't know him personally but I feel like I do because I follow him on on everything but he's the only person I've ever seen that is constantly asking the public for suggestions so it's like it seems like every week he's tweeting or he's posting on Facebook hey folks like who should I be looking at link me to photographers link me to the work that you're interested in and he's just kind of constantly looking for suggestions for him to review and feature and so that's great because you get this kind of hive mind of photographers that are following him and submitting to him and commenting on the post to recommend each other, which creates this like super positive community of like-minded people. Awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you have any other tools or resources that you use either in your research, in your art, in your teaching um, that you would also want to recommend? Um, well, I would definitely recommend the two aforementioned sites for researching artists because like I kind of mentioned, they form this really great organic database of artists that you could search by keyword. So if I have a kid that, you know, like I mentioned before, is emailing me in the middle of the night about like star photography, I could, you know, hop on Lens Scratch and search for like long exposure night photography and come up with a bunch of yeah. existing contemporary really great people in the field to recommend. And then Flack Photo kind of works the same way. I also really like the Art Photo Index, um, which I think is hosted by a university. I'm not really sure, but it is also this massive searchable database by keyword for photography of all different types so you know if I have a kid that's super interested in photographing sonograms like I don't know I get kids that are interested in all kinds of things I could just hop on there and type that in and 
be almost guaranteed to find at least one person that's working with similar subject matters, like a similar technique. Yeah. Awesome. So what were some of the other um, really great takeaways from the workshop besides just, you know, really researching and knowing that whatever kind of niche you're in, that, you know, there is an audience out there for your work? Um, I think one of the big things was just kind of coming to understand that it takes time and that it is completely okay to be at whatever point you're at in your career and that you just kind of have to begin wherever you are and know that every connection that you make to somebody, every bit of research that you do, like it's all going to pay off in the end and not to not to become discouraged if it's not happening in the timeline that you're looking for. And that the day job, like the stigma behind having a day job, totally okay. And that a lot of times whatever your day job is can kind of help to nurture whatever creative practice you're engaged in and and not to let it get you down which I feel like is really relevant for me you know my for a long time my day job was at Apple and I feel like I've met so many people in my life that have significantly transformed what I'm doing and and where I'm at just through that job and if you allow it to right these kind of other experiences that are happening along the way in the midst of the trenches of the research and the you know the connections and the photo reviews like all of that kind of extra filler stuff in between can be valuable if you if you have that perspective yes I feel like that's come up a couple of times in the last few conversations we've had and you know whether or not you believe in fate I just feel like for me personally it's been so relevant to hear and you know there's I just think it's so easy to to put so much pressure on yourself and to have the sense of anxiety over whatever timeline you're on and the feeling that things aren't happening fast enough or you know stuff isn't coming to fruition along the timeline that you're expecting or hoping for and so just that reminder from those that have more wisdom than I do has been so helpful to hear that you know it it really it really does take time and things will manifest in ways that you don't expect and you know you have to trust that whatever work you're putting in um, and even if it doesn't look like work just like you said the conversations you're having the people you're meeting um, the things that you're involved with that maybe on the surface seem less related to your work than you know just working full-time as an artist those things all really do come back to affect the work that you make um you know they they change your perspective they change who you are as a person and then consequently who you are as an artist so yeah that's just something that i've been hearing a lot lately that i'm really thankful for because i think i've been feeling this really just constant sense of anxiety over uh you know career and finances and the state of the world and everything just piled on top of each other so just remembering to have a little patience and a little faith i think that goes a long way no no i agree so much and I think that it's something that I can't hear it enough you know I, I, I think it's so easy to fall into the trap of, of just feeling like what you're doing isn't good enough again like isn't happening in the timeline that you're looking for but it's all gonna be okay it's really it's all good and it's like you know I go into the classroom every day and I preach that to my kids so what am I doing if I'm not believing that myself right yeah yeah don't be a phony <laughs> <laughs> I know uh, there have been times where I've gotten kind of discouraged by the fact that I've never had a creative day job, but that doesn't mean that the work that I do at a day job doesn't contribute to my art because it at least is developing me as a human being and I am making more connections and meeting new people and learning from the experiences that I have there and I mean at the end of the day I am the person making my work so the things that influence me as an individual are going to have at least some sort of impact on my work and I know especially at Apple because that's where Rachel and I actually met despite the fact that we both grew up in South Florida both went to Micah both were in the photo department I know I was noticing all these connections thinking how do you guys not even know each other you're practically the same person so ridiculous Yep, and even people would get us confused at work, which is kind of the best part of that, oh right? <laughs> yep, yep. The number of times that I was called Rachel or that Rachel was called Amanda or someone would start a conversation with one of us and then try to end it with the other, which, I mean, we, we have some similarities. We're both, like, you know, thin white girls with dark hair. And at the time, I had much longer hair. But, I mean, I am covered in tattoos, and Rachel is not at all. Nope, not even one. And Rachel's also super petite, and I'm, you know, an average-sized woman. <laughs> So I I don't even know. I was going to say you could have really used that to your advantage and done some kind of, you know, like twin swap. One of you just shows up for the other's shift. You all have to work half time. Dang. It's a missed opportunity. I'll I'll go see if they'll rehire me and I can do that. (laughs) 
just draw in some fake tattoos. No one will. No one will be able to tell. No, especially if you draw them. You're you know great at drawing. Sure. Yeah, I know how to hold a pen. Sometimes, <laughs> usually. Maybe maybe you could print them onto me. Oh yeah. You know, I think I figured out my next art project. I know. I feel a second parent. Make track. Rachel look like me. <laughs> yep. I'm ready. God, now I don't even remember what I was gonna say. Oh, at Apple, the thing that I walked away with the most was, for the most part, all of our coworkers were like young creatives, and or at least the people I interacted with. I know that I was definitely inspired and walked away with some really impactful relationships in my life. Rachel, obviously, you being the number one. Of course. <laughs> no, I agree so much. And I think that I come away from just about every shift feeling like I've learned something new. And it's just kind of a nice mental break sometimes to have a another job that's a little bit different from teaching, in my case, or a little bit different from my art making. Just kind of a pause in the week to kind of devote some time and space to thinking about something else, which makes it that much more exciting for me to return back into the classroom or to return back to my studio to make something new. And that was what works for me, just to kind of constantly stay busy and engaged in a whole bunch of different things so that all of those things then are uniquely exciting and special the next time I get to do them. So to just to get back to marketing your work a little bit, are there any things that you either learned from the workshop that you did recently or even that you've just picked up on in your career that you've implemented in your own work that you've really seen the effects of or advice that you would share with other artists or photographers towards marketing their work or just like anything that surprised you about that aspect of making your work and getting it out there? Mm. Yeah, I would say that, you know, we would have these lunchtime conversations with, you know, the whole workshop, which was probably like 12 12 to 15 people or so. And we would all sit around at lunch and just kind of talk about our experience. And Swanee would sit with us too, which was great. One of the big kind of things that struck me was thinking about the simultaneous importance and lack of importance of the website for the artist, which I think is this kind of like interesting transitional conversation that we're all having right now. And in some markets, having a website and having a business card and having this kind of like old school marketing tactics and these this presence is uh, completely necessary and sort of non-negotiable. But then and there are certain publishers and gallerists and audiences now that are looking right at Instagram. And so this was a, a big conversation that kept coming up just among all of us kind of in the class is, you know, what are we doing and, and what kinds of choices are we making about our online presence and how does that affect leads on jobs and connections to others? Um, and that's a balance that I'm striking right now. I mean, I, I came away from the workshop realizing that I needed to give in and start using hashtags on my work uh, in order to get a, a broader audience to kind of take a look at the work that I've been posting which felt a little bit like selling my soul, but, you know, I get it. And then, again, just thinking about the traditional website, you know, www.yourname.com, like, who's looking at that? What purpose does the website serve that your social media art presence does or does not serve? Like, how can they complement each other? And for me, I think I've been using, and this was this was something that lots of other people in the class were either doing or thinking about doing, too, kind of using Instagram and social media as, like, a public sketchbook, and that the website then becomes a refined place to post an archive of finished, completed projects and work. And so for me, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, all the images that I've been posting on Instagram really function kind of like formal sketches for images that I plan to either go back and and make more of later or bodies of work that I plan to revisit later. And then the Instagram story, which, you know, disappears every 24 hours is kind of this like living document of your process and what you've been working on and who you are as an artist, which the website can't really capture. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. And I think it translates well to selling work online as well because I I was just having this conversation I guess with Mike the other day where I was talking about my website and how I've been in this like very long process of redoing it and I still have a like operational Etsy page and the difference between the two is if I have a site where people can buy stuff directly from me they're going to go there because they already know who I am and they already know they have the intention of looking at my work whereas on Etsy or on Instagram, the work that I'm putting out there, it kind of generates its own audience based off of whatever people are looking for as far as the the type of work they want to see. Like they'll they'll be looking up fiber artists or, you know, looking up mushrooms or, you know, maybe someone's a big X-Files fan and wants to look at my prints. And, you know, my print just happens to be the one out of all the X-Files prints that, you know, fits their style the most. And I think it's important to 
to be able to have this balance of, you know, having a place where people can see your process, your work and find you, but also a place where people that already know what your work is can see the end result or be able to to purchase directly from you or whatever. It's interesting translating that from sales to portfolio. Yeah, they become like these, just these different channels that, you know, should reinforce one another. Do you have any analytics, Amanda, where you can Mm -hmm. see like how many people who are purchasing through your Etsy page came from Instagram? I'm sure I do have that um, because it it will break down where people, like uh, it breaks down the tags of your work that are the most popular and the sites that people are coming to your page from. And for the most part, a lot of my Etsy sales are coming directly from Etsy because someone went in looking and like I do the same thing. I'll just, you know, think, oh, I want like a really cute, you know, screen printed bandana. So I'll just look for that and then I pick the one that fits my aesthetic the most. And I think that's the way that Etsy functions best, um, or at least for me. Yeah. Do you feel like Instagram is a driver of sales for you? I think so. I know I I will see a bunch of a random influx of followers and then that is, you know, directly correlated with an influx in sales because, you know, either a blogger or another artist or just someone that had bought one of my pieces shared it online and then that redirected Mm -hmm. traffic Mm -hmm. to me. I don't even know. Yeah. And then Rachel, do you, you said you sort of think of your own Instagram as like a sketchbook. Has, has it, that led to any kinds of opportunities or connections for you um, just through sharing your process on that platform? Yeah, I actually, so one of my crowning achievements of 2017, uh, and I mean this completely seriously, <laughs> uh, has been that <laughs> Walter Wick, who is the, one of the co-authors of the like children's I spy books that I consumed as a kid. And yeah, I'm currently consuming as an adult started following me and interacting with me on Instagram Um, so hey Walter Wick if you're listening I love you so much and so I was just floored that that was happening and he started commenting on a couple of my photos that were sort of process based Um, you know I have one where there's like a a pencil sitting in a like half full glass of water and he commented on it talking a little bit about like refraction and buoyancy and and these kind of science properties that the I Spy books uh, touch on with their constructions And so just like little things like that, like connecting to, you know, heroes and connecting to other artists that way. And then I've also just gotten some really nice feedback from people who will reply to some of my Instagram stories where I'm revealing a little bit of the process and the construction of my images and will ask questions. Mm. And that's super cool because I can't think of any other way that that could have happened prior to this. You know, how else do you give people an insight into your studio practice that's kind of live and happening right there in the moment? Like how else would that have happened prior to the Instagram story? I don't know. I mean, people would have had to do a studio visit in person, which is, you know, way less feasible than this massive online audience of just about anybody. Yeah. And I think about that as a, you know, just in the conversation that we're having right now about buying work and how Instagram leads to those Etsy sales. How else prior to Instagram are people finding us? They'd have to search for us. They'd have to know our names already. They'd have to have some kind of, you know, Google search going where the keyword for our website pops up. But Instagram is just this kind of like democratic way of consuming images because everybody has an account and you're just scrolling through your feed and it's this mixture of everyday photos of life and family and friends and then no you can follow an artist and there's their work and then you just go and purchase it it's just this like really cool way to integrate art into everybody's everyday lives by following an artist yeah it's kind of a nice way to think about it too as this live ongoing studio visit yeah yeah i feel like nowadays most of the things that i purchase and consume are coming directly through instagram like so many artists that I've been able to come into contact with because of it and it's amazing that it sort of evens the playing field where I have an Instagram account this artist I admire has an Instagram account and now I can communicate with them and they can communicate with me and it blows my mind anytime an artist that I admire will like like something back or comment or send me a message and I'm like friends art friends yes (laughs) totally and it's just so much easier I think than like waiting to exchange an email or or again visiting somebody's Mm -hmm. website or 
are writing to them or going to visit them in person because we're all on Instagram, you know, throughout the day. And it's just so neat to have it kind of integrated with that. Yeah. And I know it inspires me a lot just seeing how active other artists are. And there are definitely days where I'm like, I don't feel like doing anything, but maybe I'll scroll through and, you know, see on someone's story them working in the studio. And I'm like, yes, I can get up and do it now. (laughs) I'm motivated officially. Yeah, totally. I mean, I love like waking up in the morning and looking to see what other people are doing. And I also like that just as a way to kind of keep in touch with people that you otherwise, again, would kind of have to go out of your way to follow or keep in touch with manually. And it keeps me current. Like, I think I I lately have started to be really selective about which artists I'm following. And I find that there are some people that are using Instagram really well and some people that are only using it to post like older and existing work that you could otherwise find on other platforms. So I find that the people that I really like to follow the most are the ones that are posting recent, current, fresh work in progress that's not available anywhere else but Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. And I I know uh, one of the, you know, on the opposite end of the Instagram conversation, it's easy to compare yourself to other artists and just other people in general and think like, oh, wow, their life looks incredible. And here I am in my like stained pajamas that I've been wearing for two days straight. And what am I doing? Why is everyone just like traveling to the most amazing places and doing the most exciting things? Oh, yeah, because it, it is become so commonplace you know almost like having a website just another necessity you know that if you're an art a visual artist then you really need to be on Instagram I think there's definitely this built-in pressure around it because it has become so curated and so you know I think artists use Instagram in all kinds of ways but you there's certainly that end to it too where it's easy to sort of feel that feeling of uh, well I'm not doing enough or my life doesn't look good enough or you know every moment of my day is not an Instagram worthy moment <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination so you know that I think is part of it and maybe that's part of the balancing act too is trying to find healthy ways to use it so that it is a source of inspiration and connection and you know building creative community as opposed to something that you know is just a source of comparison or um, pressure yeah yeah definitely I think that the comparison game is a really kind of evil trap to fall into like we were just saying and I, I know a lot of my students feel that way like we we talk a lot in educational professional developments for art teachers it's a really big thing nowadays to like get hip with the kids and encourage them to like post assignments to Instagram or like encourage them you know across all content areas like we see English teachers and history teachers in these PD sessions that are like oh yeah we're gonna use Instagram and I'm gonna have the students gram a photo of whatever character they'd most like to be in history and it's totally inauthentic and the kids never want to do it oh my gosh yeah homework's posted on snapchat guys just check there yeah so cringeworthy and the kids totally know it and it's like you know on the one hand I get it and so I try to tailor assignments and I like to feel I'm, I'm actually hip with the kids, but I'm probably not. I know they laugh at me, but... Yeah, I think any of us who think that we're really hip with kids are probably not so much. Definitely not. Yeah, no, they're, they're going to listen to this and laugh at me. But I think that um, I think that they, you know, it's this balance to cross when teaching social media in the classroom is like, you know, we've got to get over this fear of, of comparison and statistics. And, you know, I have students that will post a photo, wait 45 minutes to an hour, and if it doesn't have enough likes or enough engagement, they'll delete the photo and it's just kind of interesting like it's just like like weird social construct of mm-hmm. of posting your work online and on the one hand I'm excited about it because it's like you know the kids are really thinking with a curatorial eye about their work and the audience and you know whatever but it's also like come on guys like we've got to kind of let this go and just put your work out there and be confident in what you're doing mm-hmm. so yeah. something that you had mentioned sort of in the beginning about no matter what kind of work you're making there's always an audience for it I can see how that Instagram is you know a great platform for that of sort of organically finding the people that are interested in the work that you're making you know through hashtags and just through suggested followings and and that sort of thing but um, is there anything else that you maybe took away from the workshop or just that you've seen about developing that or or I guess more so connecting with that audience you know finding out who that is identifying who are the people that are going to resonate with the work that you're making I think it's such a tough question and it's it it seems to me that it's completely different for everybody Mm -hmm. You know, what was recommended to me was, and to other people, I think, in the workshop and just from other advice that I've gotten from professors and other people in the field is to look to the people that you are aspiring, like the careers that you're aspiring for, right? And people in the field that are, you know, maybe a couple of years ahead of you and looking at their resumes and looking to see what they've accomplished and where they've been and what opportunities they've applied for and been accepted to. And using that as kind of a template or a roadmap of like places you may want to go and things you may want to try, which I think is really relevant. You know, there's just so many 
opportunities out there, it can be overwhelming to help to try and narrow it down to what is best for you and, and where to spend your money. Because so many of these calls for entry do cost money. And so that I think is something that's been guiding me in, in building lists, you know, these to-do lists of like places I want to submit and, and people I want to contact is just looking to see, you know, the photographers that I'm interested in and that I actively follow, who represents them? Who do they follow? Like I'll start following somebody on Instagram that I like a lot and then look at their followers list to see who they like and then look up their resume and look at their LinkedIn if they still use that and look to see, you know, where have they been and and what are they doing? And and maybe that leads to something for me as well if we have a similar aesthetic and a similar style. Yeah, that's great advice because I think that's sort of one of the benefits of, you know, just everyone having a website nowadays too is, you know, artists even that are are really established or far along in their careers most likely have their own website. So being able to just pull up what someone's resume is and kind of backtrack from there, you know, is so cool. And I don't know if I do that often enough, but it's something that I've I've heard too given as advice. I think that's a really great way to kind of chart out what might some of your one, two, five, ten year goals look like um, if you are feeling a little bit lost about what to do next. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And to like essentially reiterate what both of you have just said, um, I cannot stress enough the power of reverse engineering from the basically the career that you want to have. And I know for me, when I'm looking for stores that I want to sell my work in, and I am just like looking to meet new stores, be it, you know, Instagram, or directly on someone's website, I will look at an artist whose work is not necessarily similar to mine, but I think that we have the same customer, like the same type of person that's going to buy my work would also buy their work. Um, I'll look at the stores that they're selling their work through and reach out to them. And not every store gets back to you. Not every store wants to buy from you. Um, Not every store is like in their buying time when you reach out. But I've had several times where I've looked at stores in that way and reached out and then end up getting, you know, new wholesale clients because of it. And it's, it's powerful. And it's a good, a good thing to practice, especially when you're feeling stuck wherever you are and you're like man I could definitely stand to make some more money right now or stand to like gain a larger audience um just looking at the the work of those kind of similar to you and see what they're doing and go from there yeah I think that's good to hear too because what we've talked about a lot as being an issue um, or just a real challenge for a lot of artists is that it is a such unique career path you know everyone's uh, trajectory is so different and so it can be really really hard to foresee what, um, you know, what it's going to look like. And so I think being able to look around at other artists who are sort of in this similar position or a little bit ahead and, you know, those whose careers you might want to emulate and then reverse engineering, I think is one way to make it a little more identifiable. You know, just like bringing an artist into a high school Mm -hmm. classroom gives them an idea of what the life ahead might look like. Definitely. And I think to tack on to that, another super piece of practical advice that's been given to me that I've only just started to practice um, is to make an Excel spreadsheet of all the opportunities that you have submitted to and will submit to and so you kind of set up these columns yeah I think Amanda and I both have been doing that oh yeah Yeah. great well then you guys know what I'm talking about so it's like you have the columns of what the name of the opportunity is how much it cost when the deadline is when you submitted was it a yes or a no and like a short description of what it was that you sent in. And that way you kind of can take a look back, especially at these annual opportunities Mm. or semi-annual opportunities to look and see like, okay, what did I do last year? Should I try it again? Is it worth my time? Is it worth the money? How much did I spend on these things that I'm not getting into? Why am I not getting in? Who were the jurors even that looked at that particular show or that opportunity? You know, what's their story? What's their bio? That kind of thing. Yeah, it's also been helpful. Yeah, never underestimate the power of doing your research. For sure. (laughs) And, you know, because we're all visual people too, I think just having it all in one place like that makes it really easy to see Um, like I can scroll through and be like okay here are all the you know upcoming things that I'm interested in here are all the rods in the fire or stuff that I have out there that I'm waiting to hear back from and then you know here are all the things that I've gotten responses from and if the you know if the left hand column starts to get too large like the number of opportunities relative to like how many rods in the fire I have for me that's just like a visual signal to know like okay I should probably like put 
put a little time into start getting some stuff out there because um, you know it makes the rejection easier yeah. it makes your likelihood of success higher when you just have more stuff out there so you know I can really easily glance and see well I really only have like three applications out right now and you know that's not a really great yeah like likelihood of success so like I should probably start putting some more stuff out there um, to try and generate some more opportunities and yeah you know it's I think it's just a really nice visual to compare you know what you have going and and then yeah. like you said just to keep track of recurring deadlines yeah absolutely yeah I've been doing that for craft shows just keeping track of the shows that I've mm-hmm. been to or the shows I intend to go to where they are how much the application fee is how much the booth fee is the dimensions how much I made whether or not I intend to go back and that helps one because my memory is just absolute trash I could tell you something and then two seconds later be like I don't know if I thought that or said it I I truly don't know (laughs) but it also is just really practical to keep track of everything and to know especially regarding taxes to know what what money you put down where and things that you can write off for your business or for your your art Mm -hmm. practice I don't know it's just good to know like oh maybe I applied to this show three years in a row and I haven't gotten in a single time it's time to stop applying to that show or like oh last year I made more money at this show than I did this year maybe I'll take a year off and then try it again later just things like that like it's it's good it's the less fun part of having an art practice or business but it's so necessary to just keep track of that information for yourself but it also is helpful when you're talking with other artists doing similar things and you can kind of share that knowledge and pay it forward absolutely and I think it works the same way for jobs too when I was first applying for teaching jobs I made a a really similar list of researched counties and schools that I knew had active photography programs and had Mm -hmm. art departments that kind of upheld the same values that I did and so obviously you know you can only accept one job but then it's like you've kind of got this long database of other places that are great potential other opportunities if you uh, decide to switch careers or decide to switch schools yeah Mm -hmm. genius pure genius yep never underestimate the value of making lists (laughs) yeah very true do you have any other advice that you would want to share or that's been given to you that you feel like has been really impactful with your creative path no I think that you know a lot of what we've been talking about like just staying positive and making sure that you're not allowing comparison to kind of be the thief of your joy so to speak and and to make your work go stagnant um, is something I need to keep in mind and then from a teaching perspective I think it's important to make sure that you're compartmentalizing and separating like what goes on outside the walls of your classroom from what goes on inside you know there's only so much you can Mm -hmm. control and especially as a teaching artist as art budgets are constantly shifting and being cut and positions are being eliminated you know you just have to you can't let it get to you you know you pour your whole heart and soul into your practice especially as an art teacher because what you are doing with students is what you do yourself and so I think you know my first couple of years of teaching any small setback was a personal blow to me because it it really felt like it was personal in a way that I think maybe teachers of other content areas don't feel as much Mm -hmm. because you're not I don't I don't want to speak for everybody but you're not sort of going home and producing the same stuff as your personal work that you are in the classroom when, when you're not teaching art and you know it just kind of keeps me awake at night or it can keep you awake at night thinking about these these other decisions that are made by adults that are not in your classroom that kind of affect the lives of your students and so you just have to yeah. like push that out of sight because it's so easy to become jaded and so easy to become frustrated by this all this other kind of like outside stuff and I think that ultimately it's you know it's what's best for you and your practice and your students and, and you just have to keep moving forward yeah so good (laughs) Rachel is there anything else that we haven't touched on um, either any part of your career or something you've been involved with or that you've learned that you really want to share that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet I think so you guys this has been so great I I really feel like this conversation has kind of opened me up to things that I haven't given a whole lot of thought to in my life lately and it's just been really nice to verbalize and articulate and kind of bounce these thoughts off of some like-minded people I mean I think the podcast is so cool and I, I am just so thrilled to be a small part of what you guys are doing yeah thank you so much well thanks for being on it (laughs) thanks for having me this has been so great I know how much you personally have impacted me and my creative path and every time we have a conversation about what we're working on or even just what we're going through with life I always leave inspired and so I knew that I needed to have you on the show especially since you just had that experience in Santa Fe like the whole time we were talking about it I'm like I want to hear more but I also want it all recorded (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and I can say just as a little plug for Swanee and the great workshop, I think she is producing a book from some of the advice that we talked about in the class. Oh, so if you keep an eye out for Mary Virginia Swanson, um, I think the book is actually going to have the same title as the class called Marketing Your Photographs. And awesome. it, I mean, just based on the value of the, those seven days, like I, I'm sure that the published version of it will be super helpful to anybody that's curious to learn more. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. And we always share a list of links on a blog post at beyondthe.studio to go along with each episode. So anything that you mentioned as far as resources, we'll be sure to, to add in there so that if someone, you know, wants to go and start doing their own research, um, they have an easy, you know, click to that. Where can people also find uh, your own work, Rachel, if they want to follow you on Instagram or check out your website? Oh, yeah. So I have two active Instagram accounts. If you want to follow my personal work, as mentioned before, is kind of like in progress sketches for what I'm thinking about in terms of imagery. The handle is at balloons at breakfast. And my website is my name, rachelhume.com. And then my classroom Instagram account, which is also quite active with projects and student work and artists to inspire, um, is at, at EHS underscore photo. Cool. Awesome. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show. It has been a true pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to when you're back in Baltimore and we can talk in person. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I will be back at 11 a.m. tomorrow. Nicole, it was so nice to virtually meet you. You too. Um, hopefully I'll get a chance to make it back to Baltimore uh, sometime soon. It definitely makes me miss uh, the East Coast having all these conversations with wonderful people out there. Um, although I am like in San Francisco just as well. Oh, I'm sure it looks yeah, so great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you guys. Well, thanks again for having me. This has been so phenomenal. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to our email list where we have all kinds of exclusive content that we only have available to our subscribers. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time. If you're listening to this episode via iTunes, we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with. And the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here. Rachel, I realize now that I don't even know if I've ever said your last name out loud. Yikes. (laughs) Are you even friends?